Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped on Monday, August 7th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me, uh, well, via Skype, actually, but I can actually see him today, which is very exciting, is John Maxfield, all-around great guy and super smart contributor. How's it going, John? It's going great. Thank you very much, Gabby, for those kind words. Yeah, no problem. But they're true, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to make my wife listen to this one. (laughs) Um, So, listeners, just so you know, this show is pre-taped. It's going to go out on August 28th. If you're listening to this on the 28th, I'm on vacation. I'm somewhere in Maine eating my weight in blueberries right now. It's very exciting. Um, Anyway, today is a very special show. I know I say that all the time. I sound like Mr. Rogers, but today's show is actually special because today's show is all about stories. I think a lot of the time we think about numbers and we think about metrics when we're talking about investing, when we're thinking about investing, and we forget that there is a very human element to investing, and that's why we're Today, we're going to talk about seven bankers and use them as a lens to understand both what it takes to be a great leader and what it takes to be a great bank. And we're going to, we're going to use those stories to kind of humanize all of this. Does that sound good, Maxfield? That sounds great. And I'm really excited because one of the great things about our job is that you have these opportunities to talk to these really incredible people once in a while. And I've had a chance over the past couple of years to talk to really a lot of our top bankers in this country. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to kind of tease out kind of the extraordinary lessons that or the lessons that you can learn from these seven uh, extraordinary bankers in particular, which then whether you're interested in the financial system, you know, just in general or, or in stocks and, and, and extraordinary banks more specifically, I think I think that y'all will really appreciate um, kind of the context that we're able to to, to give um, around the bank industry. Definitely, um, and I think with that, I'm just going to dive right in because we have a lot of content today, which is very exciting. And um, I am going to tell you a little bit of a meandering story, a little bit of a of a Maxfield story, if you will. <laughs> um, and I'm going to start with this uh, with this this challenge that was posed hypothetically to myself, which is to pick the top three bankers in the United States. Um, the first one is Alexander Hamilton, which you know kind of goes without saying. He started the the central. He's he was the one who was like, you know what we should do? We should have central banking. Also, America's future is not agrarian. You know, I think he kind of called called the right shot on both counts with Alan. Um, second banker that I think everyone can agree is was huge for the American financial system is J.P. Morgan. Um, he helped bail out the American financial system. He created these connections with Europe. Um, without him, we I don't really know where we would be as a country. Um, but then, if forced to pick a third one. And I know that Maxfield definitely agrees with me on this. Uh, I would pick Hugh McCall of Bank of America. Um, I don't know if listeners know this, but you know how you can go to Bank of America, and there is a Bank of America in basically every state except for Nebraska, much to my ire. Um, there's Wells Fargo in Nebraska. Anyway, um, 
you, before you couldn't do that. Before it was really, really hard for banks to um, have branches, and it was even hard for them to have branches. A lot, of, it was illegal in a lot of states for banks to have more than one branch, and that was for a variety of reasons. But um, back in the day, Hugh McCall, he was in North Carolina, one of the few states that allowed you to, to that allowed banks to have more than one branch, and he um, really pushed for legislation to be changed so that banks could branch outside of their state. And without that, we wouldn't have the financial system that we have today. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great overview. So and, and it's not and so Alexander Hamilton wasn't actually a banker. I think you're with the point, and I think this is exactly what you're the point you're trying to make is that these are the most if you look at the bank industry that we have today, and you had to pick three people who had the most significant contribution to how it has evolved. The first one, yeah, Alexander Hamilton, because he set this thing up. The second one, J.P. Morgan Chase, because he was the, the link between us and Europe during the American Industrial Revolution or the Gilded Age, which is really what where United States of America gained its power. And then more recently, Hugh McCall, this is the guy who, so yeah, to your point, when he started banking, so Hugh McCall joined a, a small bank in North Carolina in 1959. And when he started banking, it was called unit banking at the time. And you, unit banking meant that you could basically just have one location in most states. So you couldn't have look branches in most states, and you couldn't operate across interstate lines. And you think about, whoa, like how different that is relative to what we have today, where we have like a bank like Bank of America, a bank like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, that literally the branch networks span the North American continent. And the person who is most responsible for that is Hugh McCall, and what he did is he really proactively pushed, he saw the importance of expanding branches across interstate lines and, and, and having larger branch networks. And, and let me put this, let me add a little bit more context around this. One of, the, if, if you talk to, there's a guy named Charles Calamaris, who's probably the top bank historian in the United States, and really he's, in, in particular, he's the top when it comes to uh, understanding how the regulatory environment has evolved over the years in the United States. And one of the things he talks about, and it's just incredible book, is called Fragile by Design, uh, that goes back to the history of banking and regulatory policies. One of the things that he talks about in there is that in Canada, they basically had no banking crises over the past couple hundred years. Whereas in the United States, we've had 17 major banking crises. And then you say, well, why would the United States have so many, but Canada wouldn't? And one of the reasons is that we didn't let our banks for all these years expand and diversify geographically. So if you had like a regional, if you were like an agricultural bank, kind of to your point, in Nebraska, which is also, I'm, right, I'm from Wyoming, right across the border of Nebraska, my family's business was principally in Nebraska, if, and what you'd see is you'd have these agricultural depressions or you would have um, droughts that would hit these areas. Well, the banks in those areas, if you could only operate in that area and you had a drought and you were an agricultural bank, I mean, you had no hope. I mean, the farmers wouldn't be able to pay their debts and you would you would go under. Well, what Hugh McCall realized is that like, look, and other people realize this too, is that look, if you could have branches in all these different regions, you would reduce the, the fragility of each individual bank and then you wouldn't have as many financial crises because financial crises are fueled by bank failures. And Hugh McCall is really the one who at Bank of America pushed through, you know, came up with this idea and proactively pushed through the legislation that changed the United States banking structure from one based on unit banking to what we have today. And I think listeners are probably 
thinking to themselves, this is a wonderful story. Thank you, listeners. We really appreciate that. But secondly, they're probably also wondering, like, what what is this meant to illustrate? And I think that the thing that we are trying to get at here is that really great bankers and really great banks are really proactive at seizing opportunities and making opportunities for themselves. That's exactly right. So, the laws were against Huma Call's ideas. So what did Huma Call do? And and I literally talked to Huma Call two weeks ago, and and the the way he explained it was just great. He said, "Look, it was my banker. It was Bank of America's in-house banker who wrote the legislation for what was called the the Southeast Regional Banking Compact, which then allowed banks in all those states in the Southeast to have branches within each of them. So then you could expand, and then you could have these regional banks. And it was Bank of America that got that ball rolling. They wrote that legislation." got that ball rolling that eventually culminated in a piece of legislation that was passed in the US Congress in 1994 that then opened up branch banking across the entire United States. Yeah, and I think that in how that's applicable today is that what banks should be looking for generally like the opportunities that they're that they're going to need to seize and to create opportunities for themselves are probably going to be in the tech arena. So that they stay relevant, not only and not just relevant, but they push beyond that and they they find the next thing that will make them bigger, more stable, um, draw more customers in. Oh my God, that is such a good transition, Gabby. <laughs> and this, the reason that's such a good transition is because one of the one of the benefits to Bank of America today, one of its advantages, is that because of Humacall's work, building that bank into what it is in this behemoth that it is today, it has the economies of scale to invest in technology, and technology is where the battle of banking is being fought right now and really will be fought in the future. And it is because of the scale that Humacall built that is going to be able to to compete effectively uh, in that arena. Yeah, no, definitely. And this is something that you see with with smaller banks. Um, It's really interesting because they they don't have the economies of scale, so they have to it, it, they're they're playing catch up essentially. Like they're just starting to get phone apps. Like they're they're just starting to do the online banking instead of the physical branch banking. Um, and you see other banks, like the bigger banks, are light years ahead. And this isn't to say that consolidation was a hundred percent great all of the time, right? Like everyone knows about too big to fail and all that. But in a lot of ways, this kind of foresight and this push to change things is one of is the thing that made Bank of America such a great and such a big bank today. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Okay, so let's turn to the Buffett of banking, Robert Wilmers of M&T Bank. Um, Warren Buffett has this really great quote. It, it goes, um, be fearful when others are greedy, and be greedy when others are fearful. Um, and that basically means that there's there's cycles, right? I think everyone knows this. There's cycles to the stock market. But when the stock market's really high and everyone's buying everything in sight, that's the time to be conservative. To think, do I really need to buy this? Is this really a great idea right this second? And let everyone else drive the price up of everything. And when the cycle inevitably comes back down, that's when you should jump in and be like, I already know this is a great company. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to I'm going to add to my portfolio now. And Robert Wilmer's kind of exemplifies this except with banking. It's really interesting. Yeah, and and another that's exactly right. So be fearful when others are greedy, and that is if you think if look Warren Buffett has a lot of amazing sayings, right? And I want to make one other point about Warren Buffett before I go off that <laughs> line of thought. Okay. Okay. 
There are, I mean, like few people in this country who truly understand the fundamental mechanics of banking and better than Warren Buffett. I mean, he understands this and you get that sense and he, he, he understands it from his experience in the insurance agents in, in the insurance uh, business because if you look at what Berkshire Hathaway is fundamentally it's you know kind of predicated on an insurance company and then using the float for that to then take that float invest it profitably and the way he invested profitably is to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful so that that's really kind of why Buffett and banking where, where those two come together and also he owns probably the best portfolio of banks in the entire, that's ever been accumulated ever, certainly in the United States. So, but there's another component of this that that makes Robert Wilmers, in my mind, uh, the Buffett of banking, and that is that Robert Wilmers, since he took over M&T Bank in 1983, he, th this guy has just produced just, just phenomenal returns, Buffett-like returns. So let me give you some, let me, some, some specific numbers to hang your hats on. So number one, if you go back to 1983, when Wilmers took over M&T Bank, of the 100 largest banks that were operating in the country at the time, only 23 remain today, and that was as a result of the consolidation wave that we talked about in terms of uh, in the context of, of Hugh McCall. Well, M&T Bank is the top performing bank in terms of total shareholder return over that time period, and you could even expand that out to, uh, to see how incredible the returns Robert Wilmers has produced at m and If you go back to 1980, so that was three years before uh, Wilmers took over, but if you go back there, it's a real good, clean number, and you take all the companies in the United States, all the publicly traded companies in the United States that were there today and are still here today, that were there then and is still here today, M&T Bank is the 16th highest performing stock over that time period. So you're talking about a guy who has really used these same principles and understands cycles and what you know when to be when to be aggressive, when to pull back from the market in the same ways that Warren Buffett does, and not coincidentally, one of uh, M&T Bank Corps' biggest shareholders is Warren Buffett himself. So it's it's this beautiful narrative arc that uh, that really comes together. And I'm just going to insert myself real quick here for it, for M&T Bank to be the 16th highest returning company that's that's crazy banks don't really do that banks are slow and steady wins the race tortoises not superstars you know it's crazy and the way he's done it to your point when you set this all up about M&T is that every time the United States financial industry has gone through a crisis Robert Wilmers has gone in cuz there's such a well-run bank that they didn't get into trouble in these crises. It has come in and basically rescued other banks, has bought them for pennies on the dollar when they ran into trouble. And you do that time and time again. He did it through the, the LDC crisis, the less developed loan crisis, the uh, savings and loan crisis. They did it in the early 2000s when you had issues in the markets because of following September 11th and the whole Enron scandal. And then he did, he bought a whole bunch of banks in the wake of the financial crisis. And he just over and over and over again, he's just done this and it's just produced these phenomenal returns. Yeah. And the reason that he could do this, like you mentioned, is because the bank is really well managed, which actually leads us perfectly into our next person, which is Richard Davis, um, who has really shown us that great banks are really, really efficient. And the reason that that Richard Davis kind of stands out is that he's not about cutting expenses. He thinks that you, if you need to spend money to have a really good underwriting program, then you spend money to have a really good underwriting program. Where he tries to improve things is bringing in more money. Right. So, 
and I, full disclosure, I'm a, a huge fan of Richard Davis, and he's been incredibly kind to me with uh, his time and his knowledge over the past couple of years. Um, and one of the, and he's really probably of, of anyone that I've interacted with, uh, he's probably taught me more about about banking than anybody. And he's a number of different things that he's taught me. And the first is that all these other banks, so it, dr driving efficiency at a bank is really important because every bank has to earn a certain return on equity. Okay, well, if you're inefficient, if your costs are too high relative to your revenue, in order to earn that profitability that investors expect, you've got to cut corners elsewhere, okay? And where banks go to cut corners is their underwriting policy, because fundamentally what banks do is they sell money. And you, anybody wants to buy money so long as the price is right, okay? So if you go out and you sell people money, make them loans to people either who shouldn't be having those loans or if you're, you're, the terms are too easy or the interest rate, i.e. the price is too low, you're gonna set yourself up for literally failure when the United States goes through, again, to go back to the very beginning, one of these 17 crises that we've gone through over the years, you're gonna set yourself up for failure. Well, Richard Davis, he understands this in, in, in a very fundamental way and he understands how important it is to run an efficient bank. But what is so unique about Richard Davis and the way they run U.S. Bancor? And, and Richard Davis is now the chairman of U.S. Bancor. He retired earlier this year, a guy by the name of Andy Cesari, who runs, it looks to me like he's running the bank in a very similar way to Richard Davis, which shouldn't be surprised because he was kind of, it looks like Davis's understudy at U.S. Bancor. One of the things that Richard Davis has always said is that, look, the way to drive efficiency is not to reduce expenses on the bottom line, because you, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to widen that margin between revenue expenses. The way to do it, you drive efficiency through higher revenue. And it's just such a great way to think about banking that whether you're a bank investor or a banker themselves, um, it's a great way to, to approach the, the profession. Yeah, the, his core message really when you think about it is never lower your standards. That's exactly right. And, and that's particularly important. Another point he has made is that in the wake of the financial crisis, investors are particularly discerning of banks because we saw, you know, the Citigroup almost go under, Bank of America almost go under, you know, WAMU went under, Wachovia went under, all these other banks, you know, National City went under. We said all these banks that, that ran into, into trouble and they are particularly discerning. I mean, investors know that, it's fresh in their mind, they're very discerning. And so one, another fundamental point I call this, I call Richard Davis's, I, I, the twin pillars of prudent and profitable banking. One is driving efficiency through revenue. And the second is focusing obsessively on your credit score. And U.S. Bancorp has the top credit score in the entire uh, bank industry in the United States, and that gives it just enormous uh, advantages. And it signals to investors that this is an incredibly well-run bank. Yeah, and if you are listening to this show and you're like, gosh, I hate stories, what's something tangible that I can get out of this? Efficiency ratio, that's something that tangible you can get out of this. That's something that you can look at at a bank, and and that is something that you should definitely look at at every bank that you are considering investing in. If the efficiency ratio is very high, probably a bad idea to invest in that bank. Um, Let's turn to Jamie Dimon, who actually has a fair bit in common with Richard Davis um, when it comes to this this other kind of metrics-driven thing that we're going to talk about when it comes to to great banks, which is a fortress balance sheet. Yeah, so Jamie Dimon, he's the CEO, chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the largest bank in the country. And J.P. Morgan Chase has probably got, I mean, if you think about the history of Banking in the United States, and if you had to think about one brand, I mean, it's like probably JP Morgan 
JP Morgan is the one that comes to mind most obviously, uh, or most most readily. And JP Morgan, and they've just had these just incredible bankers throughout the years, starting with J. Pierpont Morgan himself. And then they had a series of bankers in, in the teens, 20s and 30s and 40s that were also incredible bankers. Well, J, Jamie Dimon is right along, he's right along with them. I mean, he's one of the, I mean, he's just a phenomenal banker. Just There's just no question about it. And he's a phenomenal banker for two reasons. Number one, he understands the importance of what he calls a fortress balance sheet. And, you know, banks, we've talked a lot on this show in the past about the banking business model predic is predicated on leverage. You, you put in a little bit of capital, you put in dollars worth of capital, you go out, borrow $10 worth of debt from depositors, institutional investors, you lend that out to uh, people and you make more money because you charge a higher interest rate on the loans that you lend out than the interest rate that you're being charged by depositors and institutional investors, and that's really where you make your money. Well, that leverage makes you very fragile because you know it only takes, if you're all, only 10% of your assets would have to default and your entire bank is totally kaput, right? Well, JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon understands this so fundamentally and he talks about this concept of, 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 of a fortress balance sheet. And what he means is that you have to have a lot of high quality capital that can absorb losses in times like that. And they have something like upwards of $190 billion in extremely high quality capital, $190 billion. <laughs> it's easy to like get lost in how big some of these numbers are. That's a lot of money, okay? I mean, there are not a lot of banks that are that big on the asset side, okay? The other thing that Jamie Dimon talks about is in, in the context of a fortress balance sheet is liquidity. So this is having cash, having assets in a form that is easy to turn into cash that you can then satisfy depositors in the event that you have a run on your bank. So that is either cash itself or some type of, of short-term government security that can be easily traded. So those are the two kind of fundamental principles of, of Fortress Balance Sheet. But let me bring up one more point about Jamie Dimon. And this is, this is when it, in my mind, and as somebody who has read just dozens of books about banking and about bankers and by bankers, this is where when it really clicked to me what, you're, what we're dealing with in terms of the Jamie Dimon. In his 2006 shareholder letter, which would have been written at the beginning of 2007, so probably it's like February or March of 2007, okay? He issues this just apocalyptic warning, basically saying like, oh my God, like we don't know when it's gonna, something's, we don't know when trouble's gonna strike, but when it does, like we're, we think we're gonna be ready, we don't know where it's gonna come from, all these different things. Well, if you go and you look at the other big bank CEOs at the time, so Chuck Prince at uh, Citigroup, Ken Lewis at Bank of America, and, uh, and, and then at, at other banks, and you read their shareholder letters, they were all talking about growth, growth, growth. Oh my God, everything is so great. I mean, keep going, keep pushing, keep growing, blah, 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 blah. Well, then it was in August of 2007 when the first tangible sign of the financial crisis struck, and that's when this French bank, BNP Paribas, uh, suspended redemptions for these mortgage-backed security uh, investment funds that they had. And then it was, of course, in March of 2008 when Bear Stearns went under and it was purchased by J.P. Morgan Chase at, at the behest of the government because the government needed somebody to help them. And then it was in September of 2008 that Lehman Brothers failed and the real crisis struck. And again, in that time, J.P. Morgan Chase came in and rescued a $300 billion bank based out in my neck of the woods called Washington Mutual. In fact, I was up in Seattle yesterday and I saw the old Washington Mutual building. Um, and Sheila Baer, who ran the FDIC <clears throat> at the time of the crisis, who's actually a very controversial figure as I've come to, to learn from a lot of bankers, she had a great point about J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon. And she said that, look, in times of crisis, most bankers will, will come to the government for help. 
But there are some banks that are so well run that the government will go to them for help. And J.P. Morgan Chase was one of those. Yeah. Again, just reiterating all the points that we've hit before with Jamie Dimon, he's really interesting because he's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of these different points. He's got this fortress balance sheet so that he can turn on the dime and acquire companies when things are looking bad for everyone else or help people out as it may be. Um, he is um, he he never lowers his standards. That's why the bank is so well run that the government turned to them for help. Um, and not only that, he's got this intangible thing that is really, really hard to measure and put into words, but this kind of instinct and this just deep fundamental knowledge of what's going on in the industry that lets him see what's coming when other people can't. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's just I don't know. And those are those are the things this is this is why investing I mean, I know investing is interesting to a lot of people because of the money, right? Like you, you can make a lot of money when you're investing. But to me, the reason that investing is so exciting and so interesting is because it's about these stories. And I don't know, um, Maxfield. I know you're also a historian. Um, there's kind of like this, these two schools of thought when it comes to history, like the great man school of thought of history, which is like you know you have these great men or women who are driving history forward and like making these like these these turns and these these forks in history that that decide how we go and then there's like the trends and forces part of history and honestly the answer is a little bit of both but because it's a little bit of both that means that there are great men and I think Jamie Dimon is one of those great men especially in banking history yeah that is such a great analogy yeah um, I figured you I figured you get a kick out of that one um, let's turn to Terry Turner haha um, of Pinnacle Financial Group who has bet the farm on culture. Um, he, This bank, to give you guys some context, this bank didn't exist 20 years ago. And now, it's a huge bank. Yeah, and it, so Terry Turner, so he's, he's the CEO, he's the founder and CEO of Pinnacle Financial Group, which is this bank based in Nashville, Tennessee. And here's an interesting point about Nashville, Tennessee. There was a time when it was known as the Wall Street of the South because it had all these major regional financial companies headquartered there. Well, that, through the consolidation wave, again, that we talked about in the context of Huma Call, that all these banks that were based in Nashville and financial companies that are based in Nashville were eventually bought by all these other companies headquarters elsewhere. And 1999 was the year that the last major regional bank that was headquartered in Nashville was bought out by a bank named AmSouth Am Bank, which was later bought out by Regents Financial, uh, that are based, they're based in Alabama. And so Terry Turner and two of his, what he calls his running mates, uh, a guy named Rob, Mc, Rob McCabe and another guy named Hugh Queener, they were top level executives of First American, which was the bank that was the national based bank that was bought out by AmSouth. They were top level executives at the time. And one of the things that Terry and Hugh and Rob noticed at the time was that in this consolidation wave, customer satisfaction at banks went down. And when customer satisfaction at banks goes down, market share becomes vulnerable and it can move to other banks. So these guys got together and said, you know what? Why don't we start our own bank? And we're gonna predicate the entire thing, the entire strategy, the entire culture at this company on stealing market share from these larger regional competitors. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to set up our control, our control system, uh, the way we uh, compensate people, the way that the, just the, you know, the, the environment in which they're able to work. Um, you know, there's going to be minimization of micromanagement. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to recruit the top bankers from these other banks and bring, have them bring over them themselves, bring over their teams, and bring over their books of business. And by doing that, we're going to be able to grow at a very, very rapid pace. But not only grow at a very rapid pace, because in the bank industry, one of the things you'll learn is that, and Dick Kovacevic, who was the former CEO of Wells Fargo, which Wells Fargo's reputation has been somewhat destroyed over the past few years, but he still made a very good point. He was still, I, I hate to say, it's hard to say, I don't want to, this has come off wrong, but he was a very good banker, even though they made really significant mistakes as they're learning right now. But he had this great saying, if it's growing like a weed, it probably is one, right? And that's it's so true in the bank industry. If you're growing too fast, it means you're probably cutting on your lending standards, and then you'll eventually get caught up in one of these cycles that we've talked about. Well, Terry Turner, I was talking to him a couple weeks ago, and he made this great point. He said, look, when these guys, when these really experienced bankers bring over their books of business, and the average banker at Pinnacle has 33 years worth of experience, okay? So when these bankers bring, and their, their groups come over with their books of business from these larger regional banks, not only does that get, let them grow quickly, but then they can leave the bad loans at the bigger banks. So it's just like, it's like almost reverse adverse selection. So not only can you grow rapidly, but you can also grow safely. And that is why Pinnacle Financial has been able to go from zero in assets in the year 2000 to 20, more than $20 billion in assets today. And it's because they care, right? That's, that's, that's the whole point with Terry Turner, is that he and his, and his running mates, as you called them, they really, really care about making a great bank. And they really care about having a great environment for the bankers as well. Um, and they, they want they have, again, this thing that you've heard over and over again, they have these standards and they really, really hew to them. And that's how they've been able to basically make something from nothing. And they only hire the best bankers. He told me, literally, if you go in to Pinnacle Financial and you bring a resume and you reach out to them, there's basically 0% chance you're going to be hired. What they do is they identify the top bankers and then go after them. And sometimes it'll take six, seven years to convince these people to come over. But one of the reasons they're able to convince these top revenue producers to come over to Pinnacle Financial is because they can set up their control system in a different way. To, so in, in control system like your, risk, your credit risk management system to where there is much less bureaucracy involved because you're dealing with these all these bankers who have 30 years worth of experience and they're just in a lot in in many cases just bringing over existing books of businesses from clients that they know really well and they've dealt with through decades and so it's reducing that bureaucracy that has made it such an attractive place for bankers who really want to serve their customers grow their business um, and, and just be excellent bankers, as opposed to spending all of your time dotting I's and crossing T's. Yeah. Um, so, I'm going to hustle us along a little bit, just because we have been talking for a while. Thank you guys for sticking with us. Um, and we're going to turn to Joseph Piccolora, who is the CEO of New York Community Bancorp. Um, and I know that he's kind of an interesting one to have on the list, because there was, last year, this pretty huge strategic blunder when it came to the potential acquisition of Estoria Financial. It didn't go through. Banks lost a lot of value. 
But New York Community Bancorp does exemplify something that's really, really interesting, which is the value of operating in a niche. Um, they, in case you've never heard of New York Community Bancorp, like their name implies, they are based out of New York City, and they specialize in multifamily homes, which is apartment buildings. And more than that, they specialize in rent-controlled apartment buildings, and that's a really, really great area to specialize in because you know that those apartments are constantly going to be filled because they're rent-controlled, and in New York City, that's very, very valuable. So that means that you have this extremely steady, stable loan portfolio because people are not going to default on these loans because the apartment buildings are always full. Um, that has meant that in the past, anyway, before this whole Astoria financial thing, New York Community Bancorp has had one of the best efficiency ratios in the business because they could keep their underwriting standards very steady and they they just didn't have to spend a lot of money on it because they knew what they were getting into with each of these loans that they were making. And, and even more important, to, and you brought this up, it not only is their efficiency ratio really low, because they're, they have these large customers and each of these transactions are big transactions as, a, as opposed to having a whole bunch of little transactions. And anytime you have just a few big transactions, you have scale as opposed to little transactions. You have to do the same amount of work, but you know each of the ones brings in less money. But because of that rent-controlled aspect, and because of the fact that those buildings are always full and there's always revenue coming in through thick and thin, They've had a they've they've charged off essentially nothing. So let me let me give you an example. Okay, in 2009 and 2010. Okay, so these are the worst years for the bank industry uh, in the terms of charging off loans. The uh, the average bank on the SNL U.S. Bank and Thrift Index charged off 2.83 percent of their loans in 2009 and 2.89 percent of their loans in 2010. New York Community Bank or in those two years charged off 0.13 percent. And 0.21% of their loans. So just an incredible, incredible business model. But let me, and I know we have to hurry, so I'll just like make one quick point on this. I think Ficalora, Joseph Ficalora, is an excellent CEO. Okay, I think he's an excellent CEO. Where Joseph Ficalora fails is his inability to admit a mistake. And what I mean is that the Astoria financial deal that they entered, that they've entered into, and they've gone through all this, all this stuff over the last couple of years. They've then had to get out of it because of their all this it ran up with all these regular all these regulatory problems associated with the whole deal. When they exited that transaction, they destroyed an enormous amount of shareholder value. And what you would do in that situation as an excellent CEO is you'd come in and you would explain to your shareholders, look, I know I've produced some of the best returns in the bank industry since the, 19, since the mid-1990s when, when, when we went public. And we have one of the best business models in the entire bank industry. And nobody should question what we do, right, and how we've done it, and the value that, and the wealth that we've created for our shareholders. But when you make it, everybody makes mistakes. I make mistakes every freaking day. You could ask my wife. But when you make mistakes, you've got to come clean. And that is so, so critically important when you owe a fiduciary duty to your shareholders, when you destroy value through a mistake and you can't admit that, that says something about you. And it, and, and it, and it, it tarnishes a reputation that absolutely should not be tarnished. Because again, Joseph Ficalora has done a lot for his bank and his shareholders. And there's just no reason for him to, to, to kind of, at the tail end of his career, to, to, have, to have this tarnish it. Yeah, and this actually kind of gets into 
our last our last banker. Um, and this is something that I think that a lot of people have probably experienced in their own lives. But one of the things that you saw in common amongst all of these people, but especially with our last banker, is that they were kind and they took the time to talk to you. And even though these these people that you're talking to are the best of the best, all of them were still humble. Yeah, and let me be clear, Ficklor won't talk to me, okay? <laughs> I have tried to talk to him, okay? He won't talk to me. And I was pretty critical on that Astoria deal, and I suspect that has to do with it. But I think that's a mistake on his part, but that's that's Joseph Ficalora's decision. So that's that's that is what it is. But my mom, she plays bridge, and she she somebody said this quote at one of her bridge games the other day that I just thought was so excellent. And it is that rudeness is the weak man's imitation of strength. And one of the things that I have found talking to these CEOs, and the one who really drove this home to me, he didn't make this point specifically, but what I took away from it, the, the banker that I took away from you know, where I really this message is when it really struck me. It was this guy, my name is John Allison, who ran BB&T uh, Bank from 1989. He was the CEO from 1989 to through 2008. This is a bank that didn't record a single quarter of the loss of the financial crisis. Again, another just phenomenally run institution along the same lines as U.S. Bancorp and M&T Bank. I, in fact, I think of those three banks very much in, in the same little group of excellent banks. And he was just such a nice guy. I mean, you just couldn't believe that this guy ran this multi-hundred billion dollar organization. Because you, you, know, you, you have that saying, nice guys finish last. Not true. That is not true in the bank industry. And I don't think it's true with most CEOs. The same is true with Robert, or with, um, Robert Wilmers. He seems like an incredibly nice guy. It's definitely true with Richard Davis. I know that from firsthand experience. I know that from firsthand experience from Kerry Turner. And just the point that I want to make on all this to kind of put a bow on, on our conversation is that Great leaders are also great people. And that is so true. That is one of the lessons that I have learned from having this rare opportunity to talk to these incredible executives at these incredible organizations. So if you want to be a great leader, it is not about being mean and being dictatorial. It is about inspiring people, leading through positive example, and really just being all around nice people, good people. And, and it's something that it's one of the reasons that I just feel so fortunate that I've had the opportunity to, to get to know some of these people. Yeah, definitely. I think that this speaks to what a lot of people have probably seen in their own lives, which is that when you're confident, when you know what you're talking about, when you can lead by example, you don't need to be mean to anyone. You don't need to cover up your insecurity with brashness. You know, you can just be a nice person. And not only that, when you're a nice person, people want to help you out more and it makes your life a lot easier. Let me leave you with one more quote, okay, Gabby? Because <laughs> okay. it goes to this. Confidence comes not from always being right, but from not fearing to be wrong. That's a hundred percent. That's that's a great way to end this show. I feel like this has been a very Mr. Rogers like show, and I feel like he would have appreciated that quote. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to Austin, our really excellent studio producer. Austin, are you going to do something nice for someone today? I always do something nice for somebody. I think everyone should always do something nice for everyone, just like, like Austin. Like that monitor. <laughs> 
It's true. Austin set up a monitor so I could see John. That was very nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> if you had to see me like Gabby, maybe that wouldn't be so nice. <laughs> trying to be the same. Okay, guys. So as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Thank you to everyone for joining us. Everyone have a great week and remember to be kind to one another. 